John 11. So last week we saw Jesus performed the seventh, the final, the greatest sign uh, of his public ministry in John. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember, Lazarus is one of Jesus' close friends. Lazarus' sisters are Mary and Martha, also people who are close friends of Jesus. Jesus raises Lazarus out of a tomb. He's been dead for four days. After four days, he brings Lazarus back from the grave, and it obviously causes quite a stir. And what we're going to look at today are the ripple effects of uh, Lazarus' resurrection. So we'll begin chapter 11, verses, verse uh, 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a, met, a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. We'll pause there. So uh, just like for, for us, if somebody dies, people kind of rally to the family. So Mary and Martha lived in Bethany, which was just a couple of miles from Jerusalem. So you had a large number of people gather at their house while they were mourning. And so there was a large crowd that saw Lazarus raised from the dead. It wasn't just Mary and Martha. This whole crowd of mourners saw Lazarus come out of a tomb after he'd been dead for four days and unwrapped him from those grave clothes. And many of those people believed, but also many people did not. We've seen that throughout John. Jesus performs a sign and some people are able to see the sign for what it is, a miracle that points to some truth about Jesus's identity, and others they just can't. And particularly, the religious leaders can't. They're unwilling to, to, to understand the signs. And so you have some people who believe in Jesus. We don't know the depth of their belief, but they believed in him to some degree. And then some kind of go and tattletale to the Pharisees and say, this is what Jesus did. And now the Pharisees are really stirred up. So for over a year, they've been wanting to kill Jesus. All the way back to chapter 5 verses eight, in verse 18, um, the Bible says that the Pharisees were intent on killing Jesus. But now they, they kind of up the ante. So these Pharisees find out about what Jesus has done raising Lazarus from the dead. They get scared, and so they go to the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. Seventy religious leaders led by the high priest make up the Sanhedrin, which is the, it's the governing body of, uh, uh, in Jerusalem and for the Jews. And so they go to that council, and that council now decides officially we've got to kill Jesus. And so that's the difference. Up until this time, it's been a sentiment. It's been more informal. Now it's been decided by this governing body we've got to kill him. So you have some Pharisees who are saying, we're, we're scared of what happens. If people keep following Jesus, it's going to cause a political riot or upheaval. And then the Romans, remember Jews are under Roman rule, the Romans are going to crush us. They're going to take away our temple. They're going to take away our land. We can't let that happen. And then Caiaphas, who's the high priest, says, listen, the ends justify the means. It's way better for one guy to die than for all of us to be destroyed 
by the Romans. And he was talking from a place of political expediency. This just makes the most sense. And what John says is actually he was prophesying. He was explaining Jesus' death. Jesus would die on behalf of the nation, but not the way Caiaphas thought. He thought we're going to kill Jesus in order to protect ourselves from the Romans. And what John is saying is actually Jesus is going to die in order to save people from their sins and to save people from death. And so the Sanhedrin has now decided we want to kill, we are officially going to kill Jesus. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, they went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Is any coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. So Jesus, remember, we've seen throughout John, he's not going to be arrested and he's not going to die until it's his time. His, quote, hour is what John calls it. And so he knows the Jews are trying to arrest him and kill him. And so he pulls back. He leaves Bethany and goes to a smaller town called Ephraim. And then as Passover gets near, remember, Passover is one of the three major Jewish festivals. It's the biggest one. So you have thousands of people coming to Jerusalem. And as these people are coming, there's a lot of buzz about Jesus. Is he going to be here? People get to Passover early because you've got to be ceremonially clean if you want to participate in the festival. And you don't know how long that's going to take. While you're on your journey, you're going to become unclean. And depending on what makes you unclean, there's, there's a different amount of days that you have to wait before you can enter the temple courts. So all that's in the Old Testament. You don't need to know about all that other than that's why people are gathering early is they're all preparing for the Passover and there's thousands of them and there's buzz about Jesus. The religious leaders want to arrest him, but you have these. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But none of his disciples, excuse me, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So uh, this is... This is Saturday night before Good Friday. So Jesus dies on Good Friday, and this happens on the Saturday previous. So this is the last week of Jesus' life. This is his last Saturday night. So he goes back to Bethany. 
Bethany, again, is really close to Jerusalem. He's getting ready for Passover as well. And he either goes, we don't know if he goes to Lazarus's house or to some, somebody else's house who's hosting a party in honor of Lazarus and Jesus. But Martha, Lazarus's sister, serving. We often see her in that role as a, someone who's serving. And um, Jesus and the other guests are reclining around the tables. It's interesting for us. So a fancy meal you would eat laying down, kind of on your elbow, laying on your side with your face towards the table. There's a picture up there. So your feet would be behind you. So it would be easy for Mary to get to Jesus' feet. Don't think that she had to crawl under the table like she would if she was washing one, you know, our feet the way we sit at a table. Jesus' feet would have been behind him and easy for her to get to. And so she comes up to Jesus and she has this jar, maybe something like that, an alabaster jar, 12 ounces of nard. Um, And she breaks it, pours that on Jesus' feet, and then wipes his feet with her hair. So that that to me would be pretty um, uncomfortable for everybody in the room. (laughs) But that's, that's what she does. And it's an expression of devotion. It's an expression of humility. Nobody touched anybody's feet. Servants touched feet. Oil was used on the head. Water was used on the feet. That's the extravagance and the humility there. Women did not, didn't let their hair down in public, and she's doing that. So she's kind of all over the place out of devotion and I think also gratitude to Jesus because he raised her brother from the dead. So she does that, and there's not a whole lot of commentary on it. The smell of the perfume fills the whole house. And then Judas, who's the treasurer of Jesus' disciples. So Jesus was a carpenter's son. Once he began his public ministry, he didn't earn a living. He he received gifts from people. You can see that in Luke. At a minimum, there's a group of women that supported Jesus, kind of like what we think about with missionaries. We give them money so they can go and do their work in other parts of the world. That's how Jesus lived. He lived on the generosity of others, and Judas kept that money. And John says, well, he was a thief, and he was skimming money. And what Judas says is, hey, that's worth a lot of money. You should have sold it, given it to the poor, because what he's thinking is that I can take some off the top. That perfume that Mary poured on Jesus' feet was worth a year's salary. So you think about that. It's a lot of money. A, uh, a Jewish day laborer would get a denarius a day. You could work 300 days a year, so 300 denarii was what it was worth. That's At, at a minimum, that's her nest egg. That's her financial security. Remember, women, they, they, they needed a man in their life to, take care, to, to provide for them. That's, where, that's how they were provided for. That's how they had food on the table. They were connected either to their dad, to their brother, to their husband, to a son, and so for Mary, that, would, that, that perfume, is that's her nest egg. That's her safety net in case there's no men in her life at some point. So again, the extravagance, the sacrifice of that gift. And Judas is saying, you did the wrong thing. You should have sold it and given that money to the poor. And Jesus says, no, misunderstood verse. The poor you'll always have with you, and that's true until he returns He's not saying don't care for the poor. His whole ministry, he took care of, for the, of the poor. What he's saying is, in this moment, this is, it's more important. What she's doing, it, it, it's greater. This is a one-time deal. Jesus knows he's going to die, and he's saying, she's preparing me for my burial, and that's more important than the poor in this moment. She did the right thing. Lazarus, this guy who was dead for four days, you can imagine the buzz that would cause, and so people are gathering around him, and the Jews... 
the, the Pharisees who've said, you know, it's okay for one guy to die on behalf of the nation have now decided it's okay for two guys to die on behalf of the nation because they're, they're going to kill Lazarus. They need to do anything wrong. Like they may say Jesus is a blasphemer. The only thing Lazarus did was walk out of a tomb. And they're willing to kill him because, because of him, people are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And we'll pick up there next week with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Again, the rest of the book of John is just the last week of Jesus' life. Things really slow down uh, as they kind of uh, a much slower pace as we build towards uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. So I was thinking about this, and there's lots of different things you can pull out. One of the things that I noticed was there, there are different ways of relating to people and different ways of relating to God, and you can see three of them here, the Pharisees, Judas, and Mary. We can relate to people out of self-promotion. That's Judas pushing our own agenda. I think you should sell this, Mary, and give the money to the poor, which for Judas means that means I get to skim some off the top. We can relate to people out of self-protection. That's the Pharisees. We got to get rid of Jesus because if we don't, the Romans are going to take away what we have. They're going to take away our temple and they're going to take away our nation. Or you can relate to people and others out of self-giving, which is what we see from Mary, this extravagant and humble offering, sacrifice, act of devotion, and her pouring this perfume on Jesus's feet. I don't know if everybody struggles with this or not. I kind of think people do. Um, so you can think about which, which you fall in. We're in church. You know the right answer. It's Mary. We want to be people who are self-giving. Which one of those pulls against you? Self-promotion or self-protection? Again, I don't know if everybody struggles. I kind of think that we do. Which one of those two do you lean towards? Or which one of those two impulses fights against your deeper desire to be self-giving in your relationships with others and with the Lord. So real briefly, self-promotion is exactly what it sounds like. We can smell it in other people all day long. A lot of times it's difficult to recognize in ourselves. We can see it in others. Sometimes it's hard to recognize in ourselves. Sometimes when we think of self-promotion, we think of the brash guy who's up front kind of waving the banner saying, look at me, I'm the greatest. That, yes... Most of us mature out of that pretty quickly. There's a more subtle and manipulative version of self-promotion that I think particularly within the church can take root, and it's kind of this, I know what's best. And so I'm going to sit back and I'm going to move the chess pieces around the board because I know what's ultimately best. And what I'm, I'm still pushing my agenda. I'm just not doing it with a megaphone. I'm doing it with puppet strings. But it's the same thing. It's pushing my Agenda. Again, we, we think of self-promotion in, in maybe an, an, an arrogant and a boastful kind of way, 100%. But I also think there's a more subtle and quiet and manipulative way, which ultimately can be more destructive because it's harder to see and because we can justify it more easily because we say, I'm just doing what I know is best for others. And sometimes, again, that can be rooted in our own sense of pride and wanting to push our own agenda. So uh, if this one is you, if you're someone who tends towards self-promotion, one of the things that makes that uh, more culturally acceptable in our world is, is social media. Most of social media, it seems to me, is about pushing yourself. We have all become brands, and we're pushing our brand through these different 
social media platforms, whether we do that intentionally or not. So this isn't fair, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you're putting filters on your pictures, what are you doing? Is that, like, what is that? Let me look better than I really do. I'm not saying don't use a filter. I'm just saying if you're using a filter, are you aware of what you're doing? And then you could decide if that's okay or not okay. Easy for me to say I'm not on any of it. Filters aren't going to help me in the pictures. So you have to, those types of things. And social media, again, it makes it, there's some things that are good about it, but one of the things that's difficult is it makes promoting ourselves culturally acceptable and even expected. That's what we're going to do. We're going to take some time every day to make sure everybody knows our highlight reel. And it doesn't mean that you have to tell that you have to post all the things that are bad about you. But I just, again, to me, it's, it's a discernment issue. There's a maturity and discernment issue there that maybe goes beyond just saying, I'm not going to use it at all to say, how do I use these things in a way where I'm, where I'm not feeding that desire in me to look good for, in front of other people? And that's, that's hard. That's hard. I was actually wondering if the whole idea of ambition at all is holy. In uh, Philippians 2, Paul says, Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And I was wondering, is there any ambition other than selfish ambition? Is all ambition inherently selfish? There are several places where Paul talks about a holy ambition. He does. And it's always about the extension of the kingdom or preaching the gospel to people who don't know Jesus. Outside of that, ambition makes me nervous. It may not for you, it makes me nervous. And so anything to me that starts to smell like I'm pushing myself forward, I'm going to pull back from, which may be immature, but I would encourage you, if this is an area where you struggle, to discern your heart before the Lord. God, why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I trying to push my agenda? Oftentimes, people who are uh, self-promoting, there's a desire for more. Greed would be the word. That's an ugly word that most of us don't apply to ourselves. It's greed. It's a desire for more. I want what I don't have. Or it's a fear that I'm going to be left out. I'm going to be left behind. And so because I'm afraid I'm going to be left behind, I have to make sure that I kind of get mine now. And ultimately, all of those things are rooted in a lack of trust in the Lord. I don't trust God to take care of me, so I'm going to take care of me. I don't trust that God will exalt me, whatever that means, at his time and in his way, and so I'm going to make sure to exalt myself. I don't trust that God is going to give to me what I need, so I'm going to make sure I get it on my own. That's where those, the, the, root for, the root for all sin ultimately is a lack of trust, and you can see that playing out in self-promotion. So that's one that may be you. That's a the other one is self-protection, and this one's me. I'm much more self-protecting than self-promoting. I know this one better. So self-protecting is it's withholding or it's refusing to engage, not sharing yourself with others, but holding your thoughts, your feelings, your opinions in. If I'm not leading a group where I've kind of been given that position, I'll drift to the side and I'll just watch and I'll listen to what's going on, and I won't engage. I get called on it all the time. Last week, I was in a group of several other pastors, and we had a discussion, and it got somewhat heated, and afterwards, two different people said, you were thinking things, and you didn't share them, and that's not fair. And it's not. That's self-protecting. I'm not going to, unless I'm 
in the position where it's my job to lead, I'll kind of slide to the side and I won't engage. And I can say, well, I don't want to upset people. I don't want to, I'm not sure what I think, whatever. But ultimately, it gets down to self-protection. I don't want to say something that then turns out to be wrong and I have to apologize. Uh, I don't want to hurt somebody and then have to make it right. I don't want to stir things up, whatever those things are. It's, it's me holding back, which can be rooted in all kinds of things, fear of loss. It's a, it's a subtle form of pride. It's not pride the way we think, this kind of aggressive and out front pride. It's a pride that says, I don't want to be wrong. I don't know if, if you wrestle with that at all. You may be self-promotion, you may be more self-protecting. Both of those things pull against self-giving, which is where we want to stand. We want to be people who sacrificially give ourselves away to others and to the Lord. We want to be like Mary. But most of us, honestly, that's a struggle for us to do that on a regular basis. Maybe every now and again we can make a heroic move but on a daily basis, in terms of our interactions with people, most of us tend towards self-promotion or we tend towards self-protection. And self-giving remains an ideal, but one that we don't practice very often or very well. As with all things in the Christian life, we begin with Jesus. First John, I think it's three, we love because God first loved us. So if we're truly going to live in a self-giving posture, we first have to recognize and receive and respond to the love that God has for us. That's what gives us the security to be able to give ourselves away on behalf of others. It's what gives us the security to push others to the front and to take a seat in the back. It's what gives us the security to share regardless of the outcome of that sharing. It's only after we first have believed deeply within our hearts that we're loved by God, that we're then able to love others. The definition, New Testament definition of love is to do what's best for others regardless of the cost to yourself. And you can't do that on a regular basis if you're not securely rooted in the love that God has for you. There's no other way to do that. Unless you're confident that God is taking care of you then you're going to be tempted to take care of yourself. It's human nature. It's what we do. We take care of ourselves unless we're confident that someone else is taking care of us. And the only one who can take care of you perfectly and eternally is Jesus. Mary got it. Judas didn't. Mary got it. The Pharisees didn't. The Pharisees are scared of Jesus. Judas is trying to push Jesus to act in a way contrary to Jesus' identity and mission. Neither one of them has fully, they haven't even begun to understand who he is, what he's doing, how he feels about them. Mary does. And so she's able to take a jar of perfume that represents, again, her, her nest egg, her security blanket, what we would say her life savings, and she's able to pour that out on Jesus' feet, literally, what, what that gift that was given to her that represents an entire year's salary, she, quote, wastes in a handful of minutes on Jesus' feet. Think about that. Devotion, humility, sacrifice, affection. 
to think about living that way in the way we relate to one another and in the way we relate to the Lord. Absent a revelation of his deep love for you personally, for me personally. That's a, we'll, we'll, we're, not, we're never going to get there. There's a tendency within all of us, again, to take care of ourselves. We take care of ourselves either like me by holding on to what we've got, or we take care of ourselves maybe like some of you by going out and trying to get more. But both of those things are rooted in a desire to take care, to meet our own needs and to take care of ourselves. To truly say, whatever I've got, I can give away. And it doesn't matter how people respond. Everything that I have is yours anyway. My reputation, my money, my health, my life, my kids, my future, it's all yours anyway. So whatever I can do to help somebody else run a little faster, whatever I can do to help somebody else move forward a little bit more cleanly, whatever I can do to express devotion and gratitude to the Lord, I'm open to all of those things because I know how much he loves me and his commitment to take care of me. We've got a couple of minutes, and this is what I want. Do you have a song? All right, Bo's going to come back, and he's going to lead us in a little time of ministry. We'll have teams up here in the front. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. So uh, you may have come in with a need, and we would love to pray with you about that. This is the thing I, would, I want you to think through specifically this morning. One, do you know how wide and high and long and deep is God's love for you? That's a yes or no question. Do you know that? And if you would say, you know what? I really don't. I'm not talking about your salvation. I'm saying, do you know Ephesians 3, 16 through 20? Do you know how wide and high and long and deep is God's love for you? And if you would say, that, that may be something that intellectually I understand, but that's not the reality that I live out of. Would you let us pray for you that God would speak to you in a way that you would understand so that you would then be freed to live sacrificially for others, so that you would be free to live out this self-giving perspective and posture towards others and towards the Lord. That we, we can't make our, this isn't about, you can't make yourself live that way over time. Again, human nature is to take care of ourselves, and if you don't believe someone else is taking care of you, then you're going to default to taking care of yourself. In Luke 6, it's about money, but you can apply it across the board. Jesus says, give and it'll be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over into your lap. He's talking about money. He's talking about judgment and those in that passage. And you can apply it, I think, across the board. Anything that you give, God gives back, multiplied. We can't outgive him. So whatever, whatever Mary gave, God gives back to her multiplied back. Whether that means she gets more bottles of perfume is irrelevant. God takes care of her. And the, again, the only way for us to live from that posture is to be convinced in our hearts, not just in our minds, that God loves us. So don't talk yourself into believing something that you don't necessarily believe in your heart. Let this be an opportunity for you just to ask God to plant that deeply. It's a prayer that Paul prays. He says, I pray that you would know this. I pray that you would know this. It's not automatic. It's something that the Lord has to reveal to us, and for some of us, it takes, it takes some time to get there and to truly understand how great God's love is for us. So that's what the specific thing that I want us to pray for this morning. Again, anything that you have going on, but if that in particular 
resonates with you, please let us pray for God to speak to you in a way that you would understand. You guys can stand. Ministry teams, y'all come forward. I'm going to say a brief prayer. Bo will lead us in worship, and then he'll dismiss us in a couple of minutes. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict us this morning. I pray that you convict the self-promoters and the self-protectors in the room. That we would not justify our behavior. uh, That we would not uh, rationalize that we're doing better than other people are doing. God, I pray that you would convict us. Those who uh, want more and feel like they've got to get it on their own. And those of us who are afraid to lose what we have. And so we hold on tightly. God, would you bring conviction to our hearts? I pray for every man and and woman in this room that all of us would live from this place of truly loving you and loving others, of doing what's best for others regardless of the cost to ourselves, and of living with a, a life of radical devotion and gratitude towards you. Whatever that happens to look like, we don't want to fill in any of the blanks. I pray, God, for each man and woman in this room that every one of us would with complete confidence, God, as sure as we know our name, I pray, God, that we would know how wide and high and long and deep is your love for us individually. And for any who don't know that, would today be the day? Saw these two Uh, young men be baptized today where they're declaring their love for you. And God, I pray that as we close this service, we would all hear you declaring your love for us. In Jesus' name.